Good, good morning, everybody. As, as always, I um, just want to welcome our Boynton campus. Love you guys and everyone at, at church at home all over. We're just, uh, just kind of excited. It's always great to be together. Um, and if you're new here, today we're going to talk, and it's going to be a little bit different than maybe uh, what you would consider a, a normal service. And so today we're actually going to talk about a very complicated, um, a very complex uh, situation or, or circumstances or, or, or thing. And what we're going to really talk about today is we're going to look at the question of when does life begin? And, and this question, by the way, is everywhere right now. You can't turn on social media or news to, to kind of uh, hear all these different opinions and all these thoughts. So today what we're going to really do is we're just going to have a conversation, by the way. And, and we're going to kind of look at both the science of embryology and, and that side. And then the spirit and the scriptures. What, is, what does God say um, on these things? And does he even speak to uh, the concept of when life begins? And so we're going to kind of step into this uh, conversation today. And so um, some people have asked me, uh, Scott, like, are you crazy? Like, do you not realize how, how, how much anger, emotion, division this is, by the way, even within the church and outside the church? Like, do, like why in the world would you step into um, this conversation when you realize the tension that it, it brings? And then some other people said, Scott, do you realize you're not a woman? And I thank them for clarifying that to me. But, um, and I do understand that, that element of that. But, I, but, but, but so the question began, like, why in the world would, would I have this kind of conversation knowing that there is so much emotion connected with this conversation? And when I use that word emotion, I want to be really clear. I'm not saying it's just an emotional issue. I'm saying that this issue is emotional because it has such a dramatic impact on life. And so this, this last week, I've been having some conversations, and one of them was with this uh, woman's clinic that was not maybe a, a faith-based one. It was a government-based one. And, and um, I was talking to the, the CEO of this, and it was actually this, this powerful moment when she began to describe to me the stories, and she works with teenage moms, of just what the teenage mom has to go through if they decide to keep this baby. And to me as a man especially, it was such an incredible thing just to hear her talk about what it does to the, the poverty levels, the dropout rates, their friends, how they deal with their life, what, they, what goes on in the situation. Many of these young girls don't have great family support. And so as she was sharing with me just the trauma that this brings, so it was such an incredible thing because it, it's amazing how sometimes in arguments we can make them not personal. We can look at the act or we can look at our opinion or our viewpoint and then we realize is whatever your viewpoint on, when it's Kim and it's her or your daughter or your life and you have to make this decision, this is a very emotional decision because it isn't just like a flippant decision. It, whatever that decision is, the impact of that is tremendous on that side. And I think sometimes uh, for people that come from maybe a pro-life perspective, I feel like that's an important thing to do, by the way, is to have conversations and make sure that you put yourself in the shoes of people that might necessarily not agree with you. On the other end of that spectrum, if you are come from the pro-life perspective, and that is where you kind of uh, kind of come from, uh, you can understand why, why this is so emotional. Because if you believe that's life and it's taking a life, who would not be emotionally charged when it comes to the protection of life? And so you find yourself in this situation where you have people coming from such divergent views, and it's so complica complicated, and there's, there's so much that goes into this, and the emotion, the life, and the impact of all of that. So once again, the question goes, so why? in the world would the church step into something that I know there is no way to win? That at the end of the day, no matter what, people from probably all sides are going to be upset, mad, disagree. So why would we have this conversation? And here, here's what I want you to hear in my heart on this and why I chose to do what very few actually churches have chose to do. And that's step right into this and have this conversation regardless of the consequence um, of that. 
is, is this. I, I actually truly believe that Jesus is the Son of God and the Savior of the world. I believe it. I believe he rose 2,000 years ago. I believe that God sent him because he knew that there was no other way for humanity to be transformed, that laws and rules couldn't do it, we couldn't try hard enough, and that we are, in, in essence, broken, and we need God. And without Jesus, it's not just eternal life that is, you know, he's the way, the truth, and the life, and no one gets to father him. It's our life now and how we live. And he transformed my life in the early 20s of my life. We have all at Journey Church seen him transform thousands of lives. And I always believe that at the end of the day, the most important thing for anyone is you need to define who Jesus is. You need to make that decision in your own life. Did he really rise from the dead? Did all those 500 witnesses, did it really happen? Because if he did rise from the dead and he is your Savior, this is the most important decision and choice that any human being will ever make. It's always been about Jesus. I've always focused on Jesus first and let Jesus begin to convict and change and form our opinions and values based upon him. Now, I say that all because of this. If you have one side that is screaming you're a murderer and the other side is, is, is screaming you want to oppress this woman's body and you hate women, how can you have a conversation about Jesus? And the idea is that so many people hear this heart. I understand the passion behind whatever side you would believe. And so in the midst of this passion, very few people have ever taken the time to really begin to ask the question, why do I believe what I believe? Like, why do I believe life begins in the womb? Or why do I believe it doesn't till it out? What are the scriptures and God, what does the author of life say or does he say anything? And what I have found is that so often we don't have conversations. We just scream and yell and argue uh, with each other and make ac accusations or condemnations towards people. And as a result, you have this divided church and divided world. In fact, many people don't understand this. This is not just a church versus the world. That seven in ten women in America that have abortions um, are actually identified as Christians. And four in ten of women that have abortions, by the way, are actively engaged in church at least twice a month. Which means that people I am speaking with today, that there are many people in here, if you have had one, you're not alone. And I just want to give you my promise right now. We're not going to show emotional graphic images of that. We're not, we're not, I'm not, my, here's not, my, my focus is not guilt and shame at all in this. And I want you to understand that um, completely. And even one step beyond that, I'd like to say this, that some women that have had abortions feel like, hey, I, I have no regrets. And some have gone, okay, you know, I, I feel now that maybe I would have done something different. And I just want you to understand that if that's how you feel, God is a God of grace, and all of us stand before him needing grace, if that is your opinion in that subject matter. And so what I want us to understand is this. So I, I set aside when this ruling came down, and I began to realize there's so much hatred, so much division, and if the church doesn't get this right, like we can't be silent. It's, we can't just stay comfortable. we got to learn to have conversations, because how are we going to reach people for Jesus unless we are able to have those conversations, even with people that we don't agree with. So I set out to begin to listen and to learn. And so I had uh, conversations with women clinics and pro-choice people. I watched countless hours of videos. I can't even tell you. I studied biology, embryology. I looked at whether it was birth rates and, and mor mor morbidity rates, depression rates for postpartum versus abortion. Like, like I have spent, I can't even count the hours having conversations with pro-choice and listening to their conversations. It's a very productive one. In fact, one of the clinics um, in, in our county, we're actually going to step in as a church and help Help this pro-choice clinic in the fact that when the women decide to keep their baby, we will come alongside them. And I've told them to help financially and walk, walk with them. 
And even though this person might disagree, we had an amazing conversation and she actually wants to be, uh, to have us step in. And that's why I'm saying, you can have conversations with people that you might have a disagreement on and it's amazing when you listen and you're in love and grace and, well, make a difference. On the other hand, I've listened to Tolmany Pro-Life and organizations and, and different elements as well. I actually made the very difficult decision that I would actually watch uh, a real life abortion, um, which was a very challenging thing, a 10 week old. And um, I said, you know, if I'm going to speak on something, I wanted to make sure that I could do everything I can, that in this conversation, I'm not just a pastor, that I'm someone that has sat down and listened tremendously uh, on both sides to have this conversation. And so my heart in this is, is, by the way, is not even to tell you what you, to think a lot, but actually to really give you the tools to understand and make that decision. And, and it won't be even to the end of the whole talk that I'll actually have that conversation. So despite what emotion you might feel in this, even if it's clapping or anger, what I'm asking you to do is just hold that to the end, that we don't disrupt, because there are a lot of people here that some of this people, especially that may have had this, this is not just a conversation, this is very personal. And so I just really want to respect everyone in this um, conversation as we uh, walk forward for here, by the way, as well as in, in, in Borton. So, so that, that's the first part of this. The second part of why I had this conversation is this, is as I did this research, it was interesting to me that one of the predominant conversations that I heard represented Christians in the church was that Christians only care about life in the womb. And I get it, because the idea is they show the guy at the abortion cream screaming and yelling with anger. You know, good luck with that. Like, that's really doing a lot. Screaming and yelling at all these women. So the idea is, oh, you don't really care about the mom. You don't really care about the baby once it's born. All you care about is your political stance. And so what I started to notice is this was all over the Internet. In fact, I even saw Christians posting this and, and actually leaving that. And so my thought would be, okay, so is there truth to that statement, right? So part of this, remember, is a pastor is to equip you for the conversation. By the way, not for an argument and not for arrogance, but for a conversation. And so what's really amazing is if you look at data, and what I'm saying data is not what I feel, right? Not, not what we perceive, but what actual data is. What you discover is that that statement that Christians and the church only care about life in the womb, it really isn't accurate at all. In fact, it's actually the opposite, and that's not my opinion. I can prove it. In fact, let me just kind of show you some of the things that Christians have done to care for women and children, not just in the womb, but beyond. And so let me just give you a couple of lists, and you can take pictures of this if you want, but these are um, some of the research that you can discover if you're in this conversation. Um, the first is that Christians have created around 2,500 crisis pregnancy centers. And we're going to look at this. This is not just about preventing abortion, but they actually walk through women that have either counseled or chose to, or if they choose to have a baby, there's all kinds of services that they offer to help young mothers walk and navigate through a very complicated thing, including, by the way, adoption, which, by the way, there, there's over 2 million uh, people right now waiting to adopt children right now if they were available. And so they walk that. Second thing is that Christians adopt more than twice as non-Christians. So like 100% more likely that a person of faith is going to open up their home, once again, caring for a baby, not just in the womb, but outside of the womb. Christians are twice as generous, nationally speaking. You can look and look at the statistic, it's not arguable, um, th than a non-Christian. And then uh, one of the things I love about this is that Christians, this is in a tri-county area here, Christians have created what's called Place of Hope and Four Kids. Now, Place of Hope and Four Kids was started by um, Calvary Chapel, Fort Lauderdale, love, amazing church, love Pastor Doug, just was texting them yesterday. And then uh, Place of Hope was founded by Christ Fellowship, another wonderful church, and Todd and Julie are friends and wonderful people as well. But, but, but these churches started foster care agencies to help, once again, mothers and fathers and children outside of the womb and that have now fostered 40,000 children in our tri-county area. 
So, so what I'm saying, all of these things, once again, completely funded by Christians, which once again goes against the argument Christians only care about life, you know, in the womb. It just doesn't add up. In fact, you can look at some other things that we look at, some of these other cl uh, clinics. These things are on our website, by the way, if you ever need support. Uh, First Care Women's Clinic, we have financially support them and will continue to be in mentorship with them. They offer medical care counseling support for both pre-birth and if it's what, even whatever the woman chooses, post-abortive. Uh, they, uh, they give you referrals to community partners, and how that works is if you decide to keep a baby, they will connect you with all of the agencies and babysitting and funding. They're going to walk you through everything that you need um, to have that, that child. And they work with local partners for post-abortion support programs. So in other words, they help you no matter what your choice or what state of life you are as a mom. Once again, proving that point. Uh, CareNet's another one. Um, by the way, 450,000 women were helped last year. All of these funded by and run by Christians who are leveraging their faith to help women, not just in children, in the womb, but also um, outside of the womb. And they do all of these things. And then you look at you moms, three-year mentorship program for new moms. In fact, we're going to be a part of that as well, and we're going to be giving you chances to opportunity to step into with this new mom and to walk alongside and help them uh, after they, they assist with the cost of child care and transportation. Uh, that's an agency in our county. And then Embrace Gates, which once again gives support groups uh, for pregnant and for new moms. And here's why I say this, right? Like, it doesn't add up, does it? When people say, oh, the church only cares, this is not really true. And then let me just make this more personal before we get into our conversation today. What does our church do? Um, just for the record, um, I am on one of the leadership boards, if you will, helping with foster children in our county with four kids. And we kind of work with other churches and how do we get churches engagement and stuff like that. And, and so um, I was talking to one of the directors in a meeting, and he said, hey, I want you to know that your church, Journey Church, um, fosters more children for us than any church in our county. And so what does that say? Man, our church loves children outside of the womb, Right? Like, we were actually engaged in that. Not only um, uh, a few years ago, we started, many years ago, we started something called Sponsor Care, which helps impoverished children um, in Haiti. Uh, we've given over our community well over $2 million, almost closer to $3 million to hey, pay for education, food, and clothing, and some medical treatments uh, for these children in impoverished nations. Because once again, your church cares deeply for children outside uh, of the womb. Um, we have provided mentorship uh, programs and, and coaches for low-income schools. We've partnered with Stanton Optical and done some things to help reach these children. Um, we actually hope for foster children each year um, uh, a, a uh, back-to-school backpack, which you heard about. So we will come in and we will purchase and buy and help every one of these kids not feel awkward walking into school, making sure they, they look nice, they have all of the things, uh, once again, getting behind them financially. And this Christmas, and every Christmas, we hope a huge Christmas party for all the foster ch children. In fact, this year we partnered with a company called Erte and Journey, and we actually bought presents, not just for all the foster children in our county, but all their siblings as well. Um, and so one, I want you to see we are very much a part of that as well as we work with mentorships to help single moms and are, we're, we're continuing to do that. Now, why do I say all that before I even get into the, the message? Because here's what I want you to see. I want you to see that whether you agree or disagree, what you can't argue with is that we have devoted our life to helping moms, with, whether they're pre-born right, or, have, or pregnant or whether they've given birth. And that our church community, and I think the Christian church and well, although we could always get better, when you look at the stats, have done an enormous amount, enormous amount to care and to love for, for, for people at all stages of life, whether that is in the belly or whether it's post-birth. And when you look at the statistics, this idea, and it kind of gets me upset when people say that, and my heart was to equip you to go, hey, that's just not a true statement based upon the stats that you hear. Amen? Okay, so, so I wanted to get that out of the way in many ways for you to kind of um, just, just hear, hear my heart 
before we step into. And so now what I want to do is I want to go on a journey. And in this journey, what I want to do is I want to begin to look at both the science, right, uh, of when life begins, and then we're going to look at the scripture side. Now, in the science or biological, I'm not going to answer that question for you. I'm going to kind of let, we're going to walk on a journey through the conception to birth, and I want you to ask this yourself, this question, uh, when does life begin? Now, here's why I think this is a central question, that one of the number one conversations you see from the biological standpoint that I heard when it came to the idea of this really came down to what is called body autonomy. And the idea is that I have the ability, because it's my body, to do whatever that I want. And by the way, I think that's a brilliant argument, and I think for the most case, everyone's in agreement on that on both sides. I think there's very few people that say, no, I want to control your body. However, I have not met anyone on either side that really truly believes in full body autonomy, which means you could do whatever you want. In other words, let me say it like this. See, I have the autonomy. Imagine I had a knife in my hand. I've got the autonomy to swing it around in the air, right? And no one, it's my body. I can choose to do what I want. And as long as I'm doing this, I'm not harming anybody, and I have the free will to choose to do what I want to do with my body. But everyone in here, no matter what side of the argument, would agree that the moment I take that knife and I swing it, and now I'm not hitting air. I'm hitting you, that everyone would acknowledge, wait a minute, well, your free choice kind of ends when it's going to take my life, correct? Now, 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 now think about this for a moment. If everyone truly had complete, if you will, body autonomy, we could do whatever we wanted, could you imagine society? It would break down. I could steal, I could murder, I could take. Now listen to this. People that make the statement about body autonomy are not describing that. So they're not saying that they're suggesting that. What they're saying is Hey, it's my body, my choice, because I don't believe that baby inside of me is a body. Does that make sense? So the argument really isn't, I really want full autonomy, do whatever I want. That's not a normal argument for most people. The argument is, well, well I don't think that's life. And so to me, the question so often that we don't get to within the emotion is, so here's the question, well, when does that life become life? Like biologically speaking, and it's a complicated question that we're going to walk through. So let's walk through a journey for a moment. And as we're walking through this, we're going to kind of walk through conception through 24 weeks. And, and then just in that season, here's the question I want to challenge you with. So biologically speaking, when does that cells become life? Because most of us agree that once that becomes life, then we should protect that life. The argument really centers around, for the most part, when does life begin? And so let's go through that. So the first thing I want to do is I want to look at the area of conception. Now, something happened that was pretty incredible a few years ago where um, these group of scientists through in vitro, where they could do this in a lab, where they could take a sperm from a, a, a man and, and an egg from a woman, and they could inject the sperm in, and they could actually see the moment on camera, the moment of conception. And when they did this, they filmed it, and it actually blew their mind. What happened, no one expected to happen, and I want to kind of show you, because they call it the spark of life. And here you get the moment, and you can kind of see what happens, is as soon as that happens, there's conception, you actually see life begin to build and form, and a spark of light takes place, which I think is incredible. And I love this moment. Watch this. You'll see it here without the colors. So you can see each of those eggs, the moment the conception took place, a spark of life began to happen. And by the way, this is the moment of conception. This is that moment when 23 chromosomes from the father connect with 23 chromosomes from the mother, and they combine to make a new, listen to this, unique, never experienced before in all of human history, genetic code of a brand new human being. 
It is at this moment of conception that biologists, by the way, 96%, most of which, by the way, are not pro-life, but 96% would say, if you were to define, if you will, not from a moral standpoint, but from a biological standpoint, that this is the beginning of life. It is a new living being, a new living cell. It's a human cell. And right now what's happening is the beginning of this process is happening. And all of the genetic code in this moment that makes you you were actually in place in this split-second decision, all the genetic code that makes you unique in all of the world happens in this moment. That is the moment of conception. So let's go forward four or five weeks, and we're going to kind of go quick through this. At four or five weeks, this is kind of what you look like, right? And so what you see right here around the fifth week, this is when you would first kind of acknowledge or know that maybe you could be pregnant, when you could take those own pregnancy tests, and you would do this. And what you see at four to five weeks is you see that at this point, the little heart has started to beat. By the way, some people go, well, that's the line that I draw. I really believe that when there's a heartbeat, I would call that life, and I believe the beginning of life starts then. Now, let's go to six to seven weeks. Um, at six to seven weeks, what you discover at this moment is the circulatory system is starting uh, to, to form, and you begin to be a part of, of what's going on a little bit more right there. There you go. And now we go to what I believe to be eight weeks. I think that's what it is, if, if that's uh, correct right here. And here at eight weeks, you get to see uh, starting to suck the thumb. Uh, you're starting to have the brain waves are starting to kind of form a little bit. And some people go, well, I believe consciousness is there. And that's my place where I believe uh, that life begins. And then we go to what I believe to be 12 weeks right there. Um, and at 12 weeks, by the way, uh, this is the first trimester. All of the vital organs are in place. So everything that makes you, you is there. Um, now everything is going to be growing, but at 12 weeks, um, all of that stuff is, is starting to happen. So you get a glimpse there. Some people, well, I think that's when life begins because now everything is fully functioning and present. Now you go to 14 weeks and you, once again you see brain impulses. You can actually they'll start sucking your thumb. At 19 weeks you get vision and, um, and, and hearing and, and all of that sort of thing. And so you can actually, um, doctors believe that at 19 weeks that that baby or that embryo or fetus, because I'll use those words in, interchangeably for both sides, um, they, they believe you actually can recognize the mother's voice the father's voice kind of thing. And then we get to uh, 21 weeks. Now, why, why I have this is kind of cool because at 21 weeks, this is the youngest birth that actually survived. And so at 21 weeks, we had this young man, this young boy that was actually born and was viable and survived in this premature birth, which was kind of amazing for people. And so you get this glimpse, well, at 21 weeks, we now know that a human being can survive with help, um, obviously medically, outside of uh, the womb there. And so it's kind of a neat. And so we we kind of walked through this. I wanted to kind of show you the kind of moment because the whole time what I want you to be thinking is, so when, is they, when are they alive? Right? That's the question we have. And we'll stop here at 24 weeks, uh, by the way, and this kind of a 24-week-old looks inside of the baby. So here's the question I want to walk through. And once again, we want to look at this from a biological standpoint uh, um, that I want to walk through. And so here's my question to you, and I'm not necessarily going to answer this in this section, but when do you feel life begins? And so some people go, well, it's conception. Like 96% of the biologists. Well, how, in part people say, well, it's conception because I have no other line. Like I don't know at what point. And so because I'm going to err on the side of grace to go, hey, I believe that's life at conception. Some people, like I said, it's the heartbeat. And if it's the heartbeat, it's alive. Some people, it's, it's consciousness. Okay, so I believe when the brain's firing, well, there's, there's a consciousness in there. And, and, and the question becomes, what defines consciousness? Right? So I want you to, because I want you to process the debate. I want you to understand um, this side of this. In fact, so here's the question. If someone's in a coma and they're not conscious, would they be alive? 
In fact, take, take this step further. What if someone was in a coma, and so they're not necessarily conscious like we would define conscious, and yet doctors knew that in a matter of days or a few weeks or a month that that conscious was going to return completely to that person, then would that person once again be considered alive? Does their life deserve to be protected? These are questions that I think are such great questions because we need to process this as humanity. The other question that, that people ask is viability. Like, well, so, so some people will say, I don't believe the baby is really alive until they're vi viable, which, which the struggle with that becomes babies aren't viable even after they're born, are they? Moms will say, no, my son's nine. He wouldn't make it a day without his mother. <laughs> Love you, buddy. Right? And, and so these are, these, are, these are questions that we have to begin to ask. And so here's the question I want you to wrestle with. And like I said, because it's biology, I'll, I'll deal with more of the spiritual. I'm not going to answer that question for you. But, but here's the biology. So, so when does life, when should it be protected? Like when is that baby not necessarily the mother's body? Because we have, once again, a different DNA, different mind, different nervous system, feel things. Obviously, it's a part of the mother's body and, and, and such a huge impact on the mother's body. But at what point are they two separate entities? At what point is that baby alive? And, and what is it that many of the laws state, basically, that when you clip a cord, well, all of a sudden that baby deserves to be protected. But before that, they're not. So here's my question. What's the science, what's the biology that makes you believe that all of a sudden that snipping your cord, that baby's alive, but then a minute, a second before, that baby is not. And the reason why I share this is because I think when you dive into this, what you realize, it's probably more complicated than you first thought. That so many people get so emotional, it's conception, but how do you defend that? Oh, it's the snipping of the cord, how do you defend And what happens is that people never take the time to really process on their own, well, when do I biologically believe that life begins? Now listen to this. And if you're not sure, wouldn't it make logical sense you would want to err on the side of caution to protect and to guard life, right? So this is the biology. Now, here's where I want to talk about where I think there is a little, little less complex and a little less clear. And today what I want to talk about and end this really is, so here's the question I want to deal with. So when does the spirit actually enter the body? Like this is big for us to have faith. And here's what I mean is no matter who you are, in fact, all of time across every religion, every culture, almost every human being believes that human beings are more than flesh and bone, aren't we? We're more than a clump of cells. We believe there's a soul to who we are. That's why you can go to funerals, you can even go to eight, whatever you go to around the world, you, you, if you see somebody getting buried or, or funeral, what you say to them is they are not here, they are in a better place. And, and in our society and world, there is an understanding that humanity is more. There's something unique about us that who you are is not just your brain and chemistry, that there is a soul or a spirit inside of every one of us, that we are really physical beings that hold a spirit or a soul. So, so all of a sudden, why do I say this? Because when the spirit and the soul enter the body would have just as much to describe the living when, when, when someone's living than the chemistry of the cells in their body. If you believe in a spirit and a soul, you would define that as ultimately who you are forever, even more so than the physical body that you carry. So here's the question I want to deal with. So does the Bible talk about when the spirit enters 
the soul or when the spirit of the soul enter that body. Now, for those of you that maybe don't have a faith and you don't really believe in the Bible, that's okay because at least you will begin to understand why it is that Christians can be very passionate about this subject when you understand. And for Christians that don't really understand why you believe what you believe, I hope this really helps because what you're going to see is is that in the scriptures, God actually speaks to the very moment the soul of the spirit enters the body. He actually describes multiple verses. We're only going to look at two sections, by the way. There's many, many more that that talks about when life begins and how he talks about life in the embryo. And so I think this is such an important thing. Why? Because if God is the author of life, process this. If he created DNA, he created life, the spirit, and the soul, wouldn't you imagine that he would have knowledge that we do not? And if he is the author of life, and if you believe in him, wouldn't you realize that he could know things that maybe we don't know, and that maybe science has not quite uncovered? And so what I want to do now is I want to walk into a moment, what is the author of life, what does God, the creator of life, say about not only when life begins, not from a biological standpoint, from both spirit and the soul. And so first I want to do is I want to read uh, a verse that is really kind of cool, because um, all... One more thing, the scriptures declare that everything in the Bible, even though it may be written down by a person, was inspired by the Holy Spirit. So the knowledge that was there, this is why there's so many things in the Bible that humans could not have known. It talked about the circle of the earth when everyone thought the earth was flat. This is why there are things about um, health and farming and, and mold that science wouldn't uncover for thousands of years. Because the source of the Bible is not man, it's actually God. So listen to what God reveals about a conversation that's had about, once again, a fetus, embryo, preborn child in the womb. It's Psalm chapter 139, and we're going to look at this. He says this, For God, you created my inmost being. You knit me together, and I love this, where? In my mother's womb. So this is a conversation about before he was born. I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. Okay, and listen to this last part. For my frame was not hidden from you when I was made in a secret place. What's he talking about? Conception. Like, God, you were there. This is a little uncomfortable. I get that. But, but God, you were there. You're aware of me. Listen to this. From the moment I was made and created, there's conception. When I was woven together, just picture all of the cells beginning to build and develop and all the parts. It's like when you watch the whole thing, it's this, what a beautiful picture, even though it's poetic. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my what? My unformed body. Like you knew who I was before my body was actually put together. Before you could see me on a sonogram, what is he saying? God, you are aware of who I was. You're aware of my life, my name, my future, everything about me before my body was even formed in my mother's womb. And I love this about God because what it shows you is that God is actually connected with the child in the womb. But here's the question once again. So when, doesn't answer when, but when at what point, though, did that happen? Like when at what point is that spirit or that soul begin to enter those cells with therefore we would define, well, that's a human being because there's a soul in them. Here's what's so cool. That there, is a, there is a story in, in the scriptures. It's actually um, based upon a historical uh, event. Um, that's probably one of the most famous stories in all the scriptures that many of you have seen and never really put these pieces together. And I just hope this helps you see. Because in it, God actually reveals something incredible. And in it, you have actually uh, two women who have embryos in their, in their bellies that actually these embryos actually interact with each other. It is mind-blowing when you see it. And so before I read this, this story, what happened in history, I want to encourage you for a moment. Um, I would challenge you 
to go, God, I may have walked in here with my predisposed idea and understanding, but here's what I want to challenge you. Based upon what God's word said, would you open your heart to go, God, could you like, help me learn something that maybe I didn't know? And so the story centers around the most famous story in the Bible, right? you got the birth of Jesus. So one of these is Mary and Jesus. And the other uh, mother and embryo, if you will, is, is a, a girl named Elizabeth and John. We know him in the Bible as John the Baptist, right? He's the cousin of Jesus. By the way, they're 24 weeks apart, six months apart. And what's amazing is, is you get this interaction that will blow your mind and answer some questions that I think will help you really gravitate and go, okay, God, now I have a little more clarity in this area, spiritually speaking, when the soul enters the body. And so let's pick up the angel coming to Mary and letting her know she's going to conceive. And once again, here we go. Luke 1.30. But the angel said to her, hey, don't be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will, and there's that word, you will conceive, right? This is the, the moment. And give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. So Mary, you're going to conceive and give birth to a son. But the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor. Oh, there we go. I don't know why it didn't change. There we go. And here's what he goes on. And he will reign over Jacob's descendants, this is Jesus, forever. His kingdom will never end. Now listen to this. Mary asked a great question. Okay, it's great. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? Okay, there's, there's, been some, there's something missing, God. Like, it's great, I love it, but there's only 23 chromosomes there. So how is this actually going to take place? Because this is, once again, impossible. The angel answers. The Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. God, this is powerful. What, what Angel says is you don't need to understand it, but God is going to take those 23 chromosomes that's missing from you, and he's going to implant them inside of you, and he's going to help you conceive the Son of God. Now we continue once again. Even Elizabeth, remember we talked about the cousin, right? Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. She who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. So what does that mean? So John is 24 weeks old in the womb. So once again, we've got this like conception that takes place, and we have a 24-week-old embryo, as we would call it, in the mother's womb. For no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant. Mary answered, may your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. So what's happening? Angel goes, you're going to conceive and you're going to give birth to the Son of God. Your cousin Mary is 24 weeks along in her pregnancy as well. And so notice what happens. And this is what I want you to see because this is powerful. Listen to this. At that time, which means right then, notice this. Mary got ready and hurried. What does that mean? So somehow God did this miracle. Mary has conceived. In that moment, like she didn't, you know, wait around for a week and get stuff ready. She packed her bags in that moment, so she conceives, and, and she hurries to a town in the hill country of Judea. So we don't know if she goes to see Mary within two, three hours, a day or two, whatever that is, but however long that journey took in that region, not that big of a region, so it wouldn't take that long. And so understand this. So when he's talking about Jesus, Jesus is probably either hours or days old after conception, just a few cells. Remember this, right? So she goes to the town in the hill country of Judea. When she entered Zechariah, that's the father of John the Baptist, a home and greeted Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist, when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, okay, the baby, 24 weeks old in the womb, the baby, just was told, right, leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and in a loud voice she exclaimed, blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child, 
Watch go. Just a couple cells, remember. The child you will bear. And so Mary recognizes the presence of the Son of God a few days old in her presence with her once again, embryo at 24 weeks old. This is a very important thing. I want you to process this. Now we continue. Um, uh, i got to go back. Thank you. Um, so, so listen to what he says. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord would come to me? Now listen to this. I want you to see this is powerful. As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the 24-week-old baby embryo in my womb, I've been told how old, in my womb leaped for joy. So, so you have an embryo 24 weeks along that has an emotion that recognized God's presence, is identified as, once again, a human being aware of the surroundings and able to react to the presence of God in his midst at 24 weeks old in the scripture written right there. In fact, what's even more amazing about this is when the angel visited John the Baptist's dad, a man named Zechariah, the priest, and he told him something. I want you to notice something powerful that, once again, God's word, the author of life, who understands the whole thing that we don't get is when that spirit begins to enter that womb uh, 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 or enter those cells. Notice what the angel told him about his son John, who was in his mother's womb at 24 weeks. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink. He was going to be part of what's called a Nazarite vow. And notice this statement. The angel, this is God speaking, says, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. It literally says, within the mother's womb. In other words, God says, let me reveal something that you can't know scientifically because we don't understand the spirit of the soul even outside of the womb, is that the spirit and the soul actually enters into that child, not in the clipping of a cord, but actually inside of the mother's womb. And God himself declares this through an angel over 2,000 years ago. Now, here's what I want you to do, and I want to just process this together. Let's begin to process what we just heard. All scripture is God breathed. So the author of life has said, this is what truth is. Let me reveal to you what it is. And I want you to see what happens. At 24 weeks, there is an embryo, a fetus, however you want to call it, a baby, preborn baby, in the mother's womb, a separate being, separate gender, separate sex, separate name, separate future, okay? And here this embryo, this fetus inside of this mother's womb, recognizes Jesus, begins to react emotionally, begins to leap for joy, feel emotions. But here's what struck me. What is John, this 24-week-old fetus, responding to? He's not responding to Mary. He's not responding to Mary. Who's he responding to? Jesus. Well, the Bible just told us that immediately upon conception, she walked over to her cousin's house, which means that Jesus would literally be eight cells, four cells, in fact, let's just look for a moment because sometimes we dehumanize um, what would be happening in the womb because of the picture. So this is a, um, I think it's a three-week-old. Sorry, I've had, uh, this, is, this is three weeks in. Doesn't look very human, does it? Easy to go, well, that's just a clump of cells. And, we under, and biologically, we, we understand that if you're not coming from a faith perspective. What I want you to see is that John is responding to not this but actually less than this, like days and what John at 24 weeks is saying is, what has just stepped into my presence is not a clump of cells, but the human being, the living son of God. 
So Jesus, who the scriptures say is human in every way, just like you and me, actually identified as to be filled with the Spirit, not like John at 24 weeks, but the Spirit of God actually dwelt inside of Jesus at a matter of hours or days upon conception. My heartbeat, I want you to see when it comes to this. Is this please, please, please hear me. This is so important when it comes to this. If you really believe the Scriptures, as complicated as, and I'm not saying it's not complicated, it is. Do you understand the heartbeat of why the predominant view of the church has been, by the way, since the beginning, that life and the Spirit enter inside of the womb, and therefore we should protect that life, do whatever we can to help that life, but not just in the womb, but outside of that womb, and also love for the rest of the world. So my question to you, if you're a person of faith, if you're not, then that's, this is not a relevant thing for you, but if you're a person of faith, my question is you, so when does the Spirit enter the body? When does that soul there, and for me, I tell you, this was the heart, this was like the thing that for me just was like, I have no explanation to that other than it happens right away in a way that we can't understand. And therefore, if there is a soul inside of those cells, even though they do not look human, therefore they are a human being, and I will do whatever we can to protect the life of that human being. So here, here's the question I want to end with. And I know there's a lot, walking through a lot right now, so hear my heart. So what do we do? Because I know I haven't convinced many people, and there's a lot of people that came in here and believe exactly what you believe when you came out, and other people believe that they haven't changed. But here, here's, here's my heart for you. So what do we do going forward as a church? And as I was processing, how do we walk forward, the fact that even though we'll share why we believe what we believe, there are a lot of people that still will go, I just don't buy it, and that's okay. So what do we do going forward? And I think Jesus gives us like one of the greatest tools and examples that we could ever see of how to deal with someone that you might disagree with and win them over and love them. And, and the story centers around this famous moment in Scripture um, where a woman is actually caught in adultery. Now, I know she's the one caught. Obviously, it takes two to be a part of that. And all these religious leaders grab this woman, and they pull her out in front of this crowd to Jesus, and they go, hey, Jesus, she's broken the covenant. She's broken a law that, by the way, Jesus created. What should we do with her? The law says to stone her. So I want you to imagine this room where there's a, a, an angry crowd ready to judge someone that's broken the laws. Listen to this. That Jesus himself made. And Jesus, the famous moment, begins to sit with his whole crowd. And he gets down on his knees and he begins to write in the sand. And most scholars believe what he does is he's actually writing the sins of all the people ready to condemn this woman. Because what we're told in the scriptures is one by one they get up and leave. And then he says to them... He without sin, you go ahead and you cast the first stone. Of which none of them are without sin and none of us are without sin. That Jesus literally was the only one that had the right to do something because he was the only one without sin. And I love this moment that he defends and he protects this, this, this woman and then he stands up. And I want you to kind of see because I want you to understand like how do we respond to people we dis disagree with on both sides. At this those who heard began to go away one at a time. And the older ones first, until only Jesus was left. And, and with the woman still standing there, Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where, where are they? Has no one condemned you? Now I want you to hear and I want you to put yourself in this position and just imagine the emotional trauma of this woman to probably be pulled out naked in front of a whole crowd of angry people wanting to kill you for a decision that probably a lot of, by the way, them have already done themselves. But now you're in a culture that's heavy shame, heavy guilt, and by the way, the punishment of that is death in your culture. And here you are, this woman in the most vulnerable place, 
And at the end of the day, you know you've also done something wrong. And Jesus asked the question, as no one condemns you, and listen to what her response is. No one, sir, he said. And then Jesus makes this statement, well, well, neither do I condemn you. And I find this fascinating because as Jesus is sitting there, it's like, but Jesus, she disagrees with what you declared as right or wrong. You're the one that made the rule about the covenant of marriage and the bondage of marriage and the importance of faithfulness. And yet she, knowing that rule, being a Jewish woman, understanding it, chose to rebel against you, doesn't agree with you, and chose to do something wrong that you would disagree with. And yet, Jesus, you stood in front of her, between her and all of her accusers, and you showed her compassion and grace and love. You protected the woman that disagreed with you and betrayed what you declared as right or wrong. Even if it meant your own reputation, that everyone would say that, oh, you're one of those people that just compromise. But this is where a lot of people think it ends. But I want you to see something because this is powerful. Because notice what Jesus says next. And it doesn't end with this. No, she says, um, neither do I condemn you. But then what does he say? Now listen, go and leave your life of sin. I love you. I'm going to protect you. And I care for you. And I'm going to show you compassion. But, but I'm not going to compromise. I, I'm not going to change what morally is right or wrong, even because you couldn't get it right, or even because the complexities of your life that we might not understand made it hard for you to do what is right or wrong. I'm still going to call you to the right way of living. I'm going to encourage you to step out of the lifestyle you're living into a new, what, what Jesus would say, a better way of life. But even when you can't get that right, or you choose not to and we disagree, I will still be the one that stands before you and defends you as your advocate. And I think to myself, what? I wonder if the church did more of that, if the world wouldn't be so angry at us. And so at Journey Church, if you want to know what we're going to do, is that we're not going to compromise what we believe the scriptures say of when life begins. But we will choose to walk alongside every woman that is pregnant or gives birth, whether they choose to abort it or not. We will always be there along to love them, to care for them, whatever that decision is. But we will not compromise what it is that God has called and declared of when life begins. And so my heartbeat now for all of you, and I know this is so emotional and there's so many answers and questions I didn't go through. We could spend hours and we're not going to. Um, we have a website, you can go to our website, we have a link which can help if you want more counseling resources, all that stuff's available for people that want to go farther with this. But here's my heart going forward, guys. As Christians, we have a calling to reach people. Eternal life is at stake. Transformation of marriages and families are at stake. The next generation is at stake. And it's important that we learn how to have conversations to understand why we believe, but not from a place of arrogance and condemnation, but from a place of love without compromise. And my heart for us going forward as a church community and all of you is to kind of equip you with the ability to go, now I'm ready to have a talk, a conversation of why I believe what I believe. And even for those of you that disagree, I hope you also understand, as you look at this church community, even though you might disagree on that moment, wherever line you put when life begins and when we put life begins, I hope you can see that we do value all of life. And we have devoted our heart and this community to reach out and minister to people no matter what state of life they are in. Amen. Let me pray for us.
Father, I, um, God, there's just so many, this has just become so much more personal to me. God, I, I don't know what it's like to be a woman pregnant and not know how to deal with that. I don't, I've never walked in those shoes. And God, I just pray that you will comfort and grace. I pray that you would just start to inspire everyone in this, people in this room to step up and go, we are getting the most loving. We're going to help people through this process. People that maybe have made a decision that now they regret. God, I pray they understand what grace is. And they begin to let your love just flood them. And God, I just pray that we as Christians learn how to be known for our love and what we're for, not what we're against. But God, I also pray that we don't become the people that compromise your word and your truth in the process. So Father, give us the wisdom and the grace and the love to step out into a world that disagrees and to win them over by our love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.